Hi, this is Jean-Pierre Mobasser with the Society for Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, and I want to invite everybody to attend our annual forum that will be on October 29th through the 31st. And uh, you can go to the ESMIS website, which is www.esmis.org, which is S-M-I-S-S.org, uh, to register. And there is a, uh, you can see the program on the website for the meeting and see that the times are scheduled so that it's compatible with our daily routine of surgery and clinic. Hope to see you there. Thank you. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. This week, we'll be finishing our conversation with financial expert Susie Orman. If you missed last week's episode, please stop now, go back, and listen to her story of a recent health scare and the surgery that followed and how she got through it all. This week, we turn our attention to financial matters, where she gives us some advice for hospitals, surgeons, and residents. Take it away, Susie. Yeah. The one thing before you ask questions or what everything, I can tell you, and Dr. Mike will tell you, that even the night of surgery, and absolutely starting the next night, I was holding court with all the nurses and trying to fix their financial problems for them. And there was even this one woman who had a fiance and couldn't decide should she get married or not. And I'm sure after I was done with her, she's never going to marry this guy with a 10-foot pole. And so, but what surprised me, and Mike will tell you this, I asked Mike, I said, so how much did you make from this operation? And he just looked at me like, I don't know. And I'm like, what does that mean? What do you mean you don't know? And obviously with insurance and everything, I could only imagine how complicated it is. But what's fascinating to me with the doctors and everything that I did talk to, it was, it was almost as if, right, that their, their finances and everything was secondary to what they do. And I get that. I get that your life is about saving people and figuring out everything. But what's fascinating about it is that it, it, you can't have separate worlds like that. It's your life. You have your professional life and you have your personal life. And both of those legs, you know, those, those entities have to be like in one boat. You can't have one leg, your professional life in one boat and your personal financial life in another boat. And then if those boats happen to go separate directions, then <laughs> what, what's going to happen to you? So I really was shocked. And even with the doctors that I've been talking to after this, it's almost as if finances are, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's secondary. Now, I get that, but you can't do that because you cannot bank on that for the rest of your life, nothing's going to happen to you and you're always going to be able to work. 
You can't bank that you're not going to be in a car accident or something's going to happen and that you're always going to be able to make a living. You can't bank on that. So you have to give as much attention to your wealth as you do to other people's health. That's where I would start that conversation. But you can ask me any question you want now. Well, that's incredible. I, I would have to say most of the conversations I have with patients, at, at least where I work, if they ask me anything about cost, how much it's going to cost them, how much it's going to cost the hospital, maybe that question of how much are we going to make from it, my, my kind of go-to line is I have no idea and the system is set up that way, um, almost as if you know, we don't want doctors thinking about the finances of their decisions so they can make purely clinical decisions. Um, even given your recent experience as a patient, it seems like you're firmly opposed to that. I am opposed to that. Not that the normal everyday person is going to ask their doctor, <clears throat> how much money are you going to make from this? And do you, do you have a mortgage? And what's the interest rate? And I mean, if you think I didn't grill Mike, you're wrong. <laughs> I absolutely grilled him. And so, but I can attest to that. <laughs> right. But what's important is, is that you need to know those things. And whether you tell the patient, whether you don't pay, tell the patient, whatever, but I am not one where I think money should be kept secret of. I would never, ever think that a doctor would do something simply because of how much money they were making. I would, it would never, ever cross my mind, just so you know. Susie, I love your straight talk and it's, it's so refreshing and, and it's, it's, it sheds a light on so much that we deal with. But let me ask you as a neurosurgeon, right? One of the things we deal with on a different note is, you know, like our children, right? Like most neurosurgeons, as you know, we, we do very well financially, right? But talking to our children and raising them up to be, um, to be cognizant of these things that you teach every day, right? How do we do that? That's not, to me, that's the real bane of the neurosurgeons that it, it's been said over and over again about how neurosurgeons can be not such great fathers. Mike, Mike Groff would be an exception to that, but I, I'm not a great <laughs> father. And how do you, how do I talk to my kids about you should save money, you should invest early, all this stuff? Well, you know, it's interesting. And Mike was witness to one of these conversations with a doctor, right? Is that because you are neurosurgeons, I mean, you have this mystique about you. You are a brain doctor. And sometimes you come home and your kids, you know, you don't talk to your kids about what you do. It's almost as if you're afraid that it will scare them off or you don't want to go into details or whatever it may be. Or maybe you're just exhausted because it's been an 18-hour operation and you've had it. But it's almost as if you keep that side of your life to yourself because it's just too much. And when you keep any part of your life from your kids, your kids, in my opinion, are automatically, if there are two parents present, are automatically going to gravitate towards the one that's not the neurosurgeon or that whatever, just so they have some relationship. But it's very hard for a kid, and this happened. And I, the reason I'm saying this is how many kids say to me, Susie, I'm never going to be able to live up to my mom or dad. They're a brain doctor. You know, I can barely get through high school and do, you know, algebra 
and look what they do. And then they start to doubt themselves because everything just seems so secretive. The other thing is that people don't tend to talk about money. They don't talk about, oh, you know, this is how much money we make per year. This is what it costs to run this household per year. This is how much we have to save. And this is the reason we have to save it. God forbid you should tell everybody because what will your kids think about it? Are your kids going to tell their friends? Are their friends going to go around and say, do you know so-and-so makes so much money? Who cares? But your kids have to understand the value of work. They have to understand what you do. They have to understand with what you do with the money that you make, why you make the decisions you make with it. And they should be part of that entire decision-making process almost from day one. Otherwise, what happens is money becomes as mysterious to them as what you do in the operating rooms. Did that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And uh, it, it made a big impression on me when you shared that with me for the first time. Um, it's it's hard. Growing up is hard, I think. And uh, we need to do whatever we can to make it, uh, you know, as easy as possible and as successful as possible for all of our kids. Yeah. So, so money is something that you have to start talking to and values. It's so important that you teach your kids values. And especially if you are making a lot of money, it's so much easier when the kid is crying to say, okay, here's your new iPhone. Go away. Don't bother me. I have a serious operation tomorrow. Or all the little kids get new nap, you know, backpacks. So we're going to do that. And I found that a lot of times when there is money in the family, that you like to dress your little five-year-olds to look like they're, you know, million dollars because the other kids are, and the kids don't even know what they're wearing. They don't care what they're wearing. So you teach them about money by the things that you do with your own money. They learn from what you do, not from what you say. So they watch you very carefully. And if you are exhibiting disrespectful financial habits, if you aren't doing, if you aren't touching money, if it's not part of your everyday conversations, they're going to grow up with it really not being something that they're in touch with because they've been out of touch with it for so long. Wow, that's a compelling and powerful message, Susie. I I wish I had heard this uh, 18 years ago. I was saying it 18 years ago. Where the hell were you? (laughs) I'm one of those men that wasn't listening. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, there you go. (laughs) Well, Susie, I wonder if we could turn that coin on its head. So uh, where I am in my career, I'm a a couple years out of medical school, and I'm sure that you're, you're up to date on the, the state of medical students coming out of schools across the country. We're all saddled with debt, tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. We go into residency, which has very low wages. And for those of us going into neurosurgery, that's a seven year minimum training period before you enter a full professional status and make a full professional salary. And it, you, know, you may not be aware, as we're having this conversation, a new year of medical students are going into their interview season right now, and hundreds of them are applying into neurosurgery just like I did a couple years ago. So as we were just talking about, neurosurgery is this high-paying specialty with very driven folks that have high salaries, but here's this whole cadre of young physicians, 
getting into their late 20s and early 30s where all of their compatriots have been professionally established in uh, business or other fields of professional endeavor for years now with professional salaries. Here we are finally out of school for the first time at 27 and 28 years old, still with a pittance of a salary compared to all of our professional superiors in the field where we're working, all of our compatriots by age and academic cadre out in the world and other fields. Maybe you can speak to the young people at my status in the game and uh, maybe some lessons or tips on how to maintain financial focus, how to maintain financial discipline and resist the temptation to live large and ignore it as we focus on our work. So question, how much student loan debt do you have? Oh, me personally? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, roughly a small house. A small house. So do you see what just happened there, everybody? I just asked a doctor a straightforward question, and he gave me an evasive answer. Why did you do that? <laughs> yes, I did. I'm, I'm not joking now because... This is where it starts. John Paul, you didn't even have the courage to say, I have $250,000 of student loan debt. You're right. A small house. A small house where? Be a man right now, John Paul. How much student <laughs> loan debt do you have? I have $300,000 of debt. All right. Now, did you just hear his voice? Right. Your voice just went down. If we did this neuroscience thing on your voice, we would have heard depression. We'd have, we, would, we would have heard defeat. We would have heard absolute embarrassment on somebody and as if there was no way you were ever going to be able to get out of it. You have got to change your attitude. $300,000 is nothing given where you are right now. And obviously, you know, whether you're on an income-based, what kind of repayment method are you on for your student loans? It is income-based. All right. So you're able to do an income-based repayment program right now. You're able to make those payments right now. As time goes on, your salary will go up, your income will go up, and you'll be able to pay that. There will come a, year, a time when you could have paid that off in just one year maybe even probably six months. So you have to look to the future of what that student loan debt is going to allow you to become because it's impossible for you to be a neurosurgeon or a brain doctor or whatever you want to call yourself without really creating that much student loan debt. So that should be something that you shout on the top of your lungs where you're proud. I have $300,000 of student loan debt. And because I have $300,000 of student loan debt, I am going to be able to be a neurosurgeon or a neurologist or whatever it is. And I am going to save lives and I am going to help people. And I am going to be able to do this. And I'm going to do it one day at a time. So if you cannot be a warrior where you don't turn your back on the battlefield, get out of the profession. Because then you don't belong here, right? You do not have time to let yourself get overrun with $300,000 or $400,000 or whatever it may be, because you're in a great field. Now, if you told me that you are a veterinarian and you have, I'm very serious about this, and you have $350,000, $400,000 of student loan debt, which many of them do, by the way, and there's really not a big chance for you ever to do that. Now I would tell you, okay, you have a good reason to be depressed. 
<laughs> Let's think about it. But don't, not if you are studying to be a doctor. It's just the price that you have to pay for a life of saving lives, really changing possibly science and how everything works in the future and doing something that you love. So, so my advice to you would be, don't be afraid to tell people how much debt you have. D discuss it. Don't be afraid to say I'm on income-based repayment methods, right? Or whatever it may be. And just know that you can handle this, but you've got to change your attitude. It's got to be a warrior attitude. So Money JP can't be doesn't an unspoken language. What was JP that? Doesn't have to, I was going to say JP doesn't have to be afraid to share because he just has told everybody now in the podcast. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and all the people listening, if you have a site and you can post it for your podcast or everything, every single person listening to this should post on the podcast somewhere. I have this much debt. But let me ask you, Susie, because yeah. there are two things that are unique about the profession. I mean, one is that because uh, we start generating income so much later in our life yeah. cycle, we have a lot more expenses at the time we're generating. And the other the other thing is that our the length of our career in general is going to be a little bit shorter because we start so much later entering into the workforce. So those two things, you know, really work against compound compounded interest. Yes, but but Dr. Mike, do you know any of your fellow doctors that have been doing it for a number of years that aren't really doing fine and they're out of student loan debt now? Uh, no, I don't. All right. So, so you can always come up with an excuse that, oh, your compounding years is going to be less because you started so much later that you can always come up with excuses of whatever mm -hmm. it is. But that just means you save more. That means you invest more wisely. That means that you do things with your money that makes sense and that you don't ignore it. You have the right type of life insurance. You don't make mistakes where you get whole life, universal or variable life insurance. You know, you stay away from bond funds, especially now when you're making investments. You learn how to invest how to dollar cost average, especially in your younger years when you aren't making a lot of money. These are the years that you want to have a Roth IRA or a Roth 403B or whatever your hospital may offer. Forget the tax write-offs today when you're not making a lot of money. So that money can compound right now absolutely tax-free for you. There are so many things that you can be doing. All right, so you buy a home and you have a home. All right, if you once you know you're going to live in that house for the rest of your life, pay off the mortgage on the home. Right. Because the less expenses you have when it comes time for you to actually retire, the further your money will go. It's never about how much money you have. It's about what are you going to have to spend that money on? Mm -hmm. So don't buy a bigger house. Don't buy new cars. Don't impress people you don't even know or like with money you don't even have. Don't do that. Who cares if you're a doctor and you're driving a car that's 10 years old? I'm the world's personal finance expert and I drive a car that's 10 years old and it's probably going to be 12 years old and 14 years old. I don't care about it. I don't have to impress anybody. But right. I still value every single penny. Even though I am a multi, 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 I could go on forever millionaire, 
I care about every penny that I make. Katie and I hardly ever go out to eat. Forget COVID. We hardly ever went out to eat because we're not going to waste money on that. Now, for mm-hmm. the past three months, I've just chased down $69 from a company that said they sent me something. I never got it. And I wanted my money back. $69. And I can't tell you how many hours I was on with PayPal and then American Express, that everything. But I got my money back today, everybody. And I can't tell you how happy that made me. Good. Well, Susie, we want to be respectful of your time. And we love the compelling message. I think our listeners are getting a feel of just how Susie has changed so many people's lives. Um, it, it really is uh, fantastic to hear your voice like this. But if you're more a reader, please pick up one of Susie's numerous best-selling books. She really is, as she said, one of the world's experts in finance for, can I say it? Everybody, right? Not just certain people, for everybody. Yeah. Susie, thank you so much. Mike Groff, thank you for taking such great care of this national treasure of ours. He did a good job, didn't he, boys? He did a good job. I love you, Mikey. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> Well, JP, that was a great episode. Now, I want to just take a minute at the end of this podcast to reach out to our listeners. And I'm going to make an assumption that everybody listening out there cares about neurosurgery, whether it's us as a field or us as neurosurgeons or that you want to be a neurosurgeon or you care about what we provide for patients. Um, In that light, everybody knows that the training is arduous and it takes a long time and it's very expensive. So I want to make you aware of the NREF, which is the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation, which has been in operations in the AANS. It's the philanthropic arm of the AANS and has been for many decades now. NREF uh, funds all kinds of important initiatives, including basic science research, clinical studies, resident education for courses, fellow education, and fellowships. But of course, that doesn't come cheap. So we've raised uh, monies over the years. And for every dollar invested in NREF, for example, it comes back as $36 in NIH-funded uh, research for our field. So it's a, it's a huge return on the investment. I myself am a Cushing-level uh, donor, which means I've contributed a great deal of money myself to NREF because it's so important. But I want to make you aware of a different way to invest, which doesn't actually cost you anything. We've just heard Mike Groff and Susie Orman talk about uh, investing in health and in life. Mike Groff is actually the chair of NREF now, and Susie Orman talks about investing. So we've partnered with Amazon and Amazon Smile to do something that's very easy for you to do. All you've got to do is go to smile.amazon.com. Select NREF, N-R-E-F, or the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation as the, um, the entity which you would like the donations to go to. And for that... Half a percent of everything you spend at Amazon goes to NREF, and that comes at no cost to you. So as an example, if you spend $1,000, NREF gets $5 from Amazon. Now, it doesn't seem like much, right? But some of us out there spend a lot on Amazon, and there are a lot of neurosurgeons, and it recurs. So think about this as you plan your holiday shopping. Please go online if you use Amazon to go to smile.amazon.com, register. Remember, it's free money. Don't leave it on the table. <laughs> 